Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be finding out how Wi-Fi signals could be harnessed to power electronics. And celebrating some of the women behind the periodic table. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Wireless charging is all the rage right now. No wires, just power from the air. Chargers like this work by converting electricity into radio frequency waves, also called RF waves. They travel through the air before being captured by a device and converted back into electricity. Neat. Now, wireless chargers use very low frequency RF waves, and the devices being charged have to be very close to the source where it's most powerful. But what if we could develop devices which could harness weaker RF signals from further away? And what if those signals were at a higher frequency, like maybe those used by Wi-Fi routers? Do I hear Wi-Fi charging? Well, as wireless tech develops, cities like London, where I'm sitting right now, are getting chock full of high-frequency radio waves. And right now, that energy's just wasted. That is what researcher Tomas Palacios from MIT in the US is trying to change. He's developing a new type of energy harvesting device, which he hopes will future-proof our energy gathering needs. And in Tomas's mind, the future is big and the future is bendy. I gave him a call to find out more. The way I envision the, the future, we are going to have electronics everywhere. We are going to have electronics embedded in our clothes, on the floor in our buildings, in the bridges, basically everywhere. But then the question is, how how do we power those electronics? And I believe that an interesting approach is by harvesting whatever energy is out there. A relatively straightforward solution is to harvest sunlight. But the problem is that the sun is only out for that many hours a day. 
So then what is the next option? And it turns out to, to be RF signals coming from cell phones, Wi-Fi routers, that, that is energy that is already out there. And we are not doing anything with it. And the technology that's needed to harvest these sorts of signals is not a particularly new technology. It's, it's, it's a device called a Rectenna. Tell me, what is that and roughly how does it work? That is correct. The, the idea of the Rectenna has been there for many decades. And there are commercial devices that, that are working today based on, on this concept. The first thing you, you need to, to do is to have an antenna. That antenna takes the RF signals and then the problem is that the RF signals are sinusoidal in nature, and that means that they cannot be used to power electronics directly. So to make them useful, you need to rectify them. So you couple the, the antenna with a rectifying device, and that combination is called the rectenna. The problem with, with that approach based on conventional electronics is that It's relatively expensive, and what I think is more important, the form factor is very small. Yeah, and this form factor, the sort of shape of electronics, is very much at the heart of the work that you're doing. Tell me, what's wrong with the current form factor, the way that electronics work at the moment, and what needs to change? There is a mismatch between the electronics that we have today, which is very, very small, and there are lots of applications that really benefit from having small electronics, and the big infrastructure that we are surrounded by. So as we move in the direction of bringing sensors to everything we have, we need, I believe, to change the form factor of electronics. We need to move towards something that is a lot more flexible, mechanically flexible to be able to embed it on a wide variety of new objects and also something that is compatible with the large dimensions of things around us. And your approach to create these new, flexible, large area electronics is to use 2D materials, these super thin, maybe only a couple of atom thick sheets of material that are popping up all over the place at the moment. Yeah, so the, the material we've used is called molybdenum disulfide, and it's basically a three atom thick semiconductor that we grew by a process called chemical vapor deposition which can actually be done on a roll-to-roll basis. So that means that we can potentially produce thousands of square meters of this material with high enough quality to make these RF harvesting devices. And so you've created your device. Tell me some numbers. What is it able to do? For the first time in flexible electronics, we can harvest RF signals all the way till 10 gigahertz, which basically covers 99% of the frequency bands of interest for Wi-Fi, cell phone base stations, radio channels, etc. And not only is able to go to very high frequencies, but also is able to harvest those signals in a fairly efficient manner. It's actually enough to, to power some simple LED display as well as some low-power 
electronic sensors and communication devices. How common is molybdenum? Is it, is it something that you can feasibly use on a large scale? Would that be even cheap enough? I mean, the, the big advantage is that we don't need that much of it. We only need three atomic layers. In volume, it's very, very small. So I, I do believe that the, the final cost of these RF uh, harvesting devices is going to be ve- very low. But we are not selling these devices yet. I mean, we, we haven't really studied the, the cost structure uh, yet to know exactly what, what will be the final price. But they will be cheaper than, than conventional electronics, orders of magnitude cheaper. That was Tomas Palacios. You can read his paper over at nature.com forward slash nature. Listeners, 2019 is a big year for chemistry and for science. This year is the International Year of the Periodic Table of Chemical Elements, celebrating the 150th anniversary of Dmitry Mendeleev's insightful mapping out of the elements way back in 1869. The periodic table's wonder is in its simplicity, laying out elements according to their atomic number and properties. The table was made before many elements were discovered, or in some cases created, but Mendeleev's system left gaps where they would fit. There were many scientists involved in filling in the table by discovering elements and learning more about them. But lots of these great scientists are underappreciated or, in some cases, completely unrecognised. And, as is so often the way throughout science history, many of these unrecognised researchers were women. So, in Nature This Week, we've a comment article highlighting some of those women who were absolutely central to our understanding of the elements. You've certainly heard of double Nobel laureate Marie Curie, but there are many other women who remain largely unknown. One of the comments authors is Annette Lickness from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. I gave her a call and she told me about a female chemist who played an important role in piecing together the early periodic table. Just a few years after Mendeleev had presented his first periodic table, there was a Russian woman called Yulia Lermontova, and she took up a challenge that was being discussed among the chemists at the time, how to order the platinum and metal elements in the right way. Because in order to place them in the periodic system in the right order, you need a very accurate atomic weight, as they called it at that time. In order to find that atomic weight, you needed to separate the elements. And uh, this demanded very careful chemical analytical work. We don't know exactly why she took up the work, whether it was because Mendeleev asked her. But at the very least, we find her manuscript and correspondence between Mendeleev and her about it in his archives. So she was working to separate out the elements in the platinum group so they could be correctly placed in the periodic table. Is she well remembered within the chemistry community? Not at all. She's mostly forgotten, actually. Of course, she has uh, been celebrated as as one of the early chemists at that time, but she's not celebrated for her work in the periodic table. And scientists being forgotten is something that is mentioned several times in the piece you've written. Who else was really important at the time who doesn't get the credit they deserve? When we're talking about radioactivity, many, many women have been involved. Radioactivity was, in fact, a field that attracted many women, not just to Marie Curie's uh, laboratory, but also to uh, the laboratory of uh, radioactivity research in Vienna and also elsewhere. And why was that? One reason was that this was a new field, so it was not established as a 
male community, so to speak, with hierarchies between men. Uh, also the role of the supervisors, uh, not just Marie Curie, who was not actually particularly trying to recruit new women, but also the male leaders of the laboratories, like Stefan Meyer in Vienna, Rutherford, who was first in Canada and later in the UK. They have been characterized as very encouraging towards women. At this time, there were still a lot of gaps in the periodic table, and chemists were working to fill them in, but sometimes there were more elements being discovered than there were gaps. So what was going on there? In 1913, Frederick Soddy, the British chemist, he proposed a new concept, which he called isotopes. It means the same element could have different atomic weights. Actually, it was a woman called Margaret Todd, a physician, who coined the, the term when she was attending a dinner party with Soddy. So how was the concept of isotopes proved? One way of proving it was to find one particular element that had the different atomic weights. So Soddy suggested, for example, that lead that uh, was derived from uranium decay had a lower atomic weight than ordinary lead, while lead that came from decay of thorium would have a greater atomic weight. And this is where a woman comes into the picture. So this is a Polish-Jewish chemist called Stephanie Horowitz. She was working on radioactive uranium and radium ores. And so she separated out very pure samples of lead through careful extraction procedures and atomic weight determinations. And she was providing the first authoritative evidence for the concept of isotopes. Well, let's leap forward again then, Annette, to when researchers had a better idea of atomic structure. Who is one more female researcher who you think deserves better recognition? So if we move a little bit further in time, into the 1920s, at that time, many of the gaps in the periodic table had been filled already, but there were still a few that Mendeleev had predicted that had not yet been discovered. One of the women who were involved in this was called Ida Nodak. She was a German chemist. She met uh, Walter, who became her husband. He was a chemist too. And together they decided to take up the quest for uh, finding the elements beneath manganese in the periodic table. Uh, after some years, they discovered the element uh, they called rhenium after the river Rhine. As well as being the co-author on this week's comment, you've also co-edited a forthcoming book about the women behind the periodic table. Again and again, many of these women were overlooked. Why did this keep happening? Quite often, the women didn't have prominent positions in the community. Quite often, they were working with other men, and they were part of teams, and, and other people got the credit for it. So when we look at women, it's one way of unveiling the fuller picture of all the people working, where many of them were women, unpaid assistants, technicians. So we want to emphasize with this work that we want to bring the women to the fore, but also the many men who were not credited. That was Annette Lickness. You can read her comment article, which has stories about many more of the women behind the periodic table, over at go.nature.com slash periodic table, where you'll find a host of other content celebrating the table's 150th anniversary. Stick around for the news chat, where we've got the latest on the recently ended US government shutdown. But before then, Nick Howell, the newest member of the podcast team, is here with this week's research highlights. When your alarm clock rings, do you groan and roll over, or do you leap straight out of bed? Your response may be partly down to your genes. Scientists studied the genomes of nearly 700,000 people, 
they found 351 genetic regions associated with a person's natural sleep rhythms, also known as their chronotype. The research suggests that wanting to sleep at a certain time may have much more of a genetic basis than previously thought. The authors also suggest associations between chronotype and health, with early birds having higher subjective well-being and a lower risk of depression. However, there's still much to learn, as this latest study relies in part on self-reporting of sleep times. So more work needs to be done to confirm the role that these genetic regions play. Find that bedtime reading in Nature Communications. Researchers from Spain have developed a virus that could help treat certain types of eye cancer in children. In a cancer of the developing retina, known as retinoblastoma, tumors overproduce a protein called E2F. The team behind this work designed a virus to kill retinoblastoma cells. This virus is unable to replicate without E2F, making it highly specific to the tumor cells. These targeted viruses could be especially useful when treating tumors resistant to chemotherapy, negating the need to remove affected eyes. In the first small human trial of two patients, the virus successfully shrank small tumors in one of the participants. Have a look at this research in Science Translational Medicine. Finally then on this week's show, it's time for the news chat. And I'm joined here in the studio by Sarah Reardon, reporter here at Nature. Hi, Sarah. Hello. So for our first story today then, Sarah, let's talk about the shutdown. Uh, This week, thousands of US federal employees are going back to work. Yeah, the government has been shut down since before Christmas over funding disputes. Uh, They have agreed last week to reopen temporarily just for three weeks while they uh, try and hash out some discussions. So at least for the time being, hundreds of thousands of employees are going to be going back to work. Which has got to be good news if you've got bills to pay. This shutdown lasted for, uh, I think, 35 days, which is a, a record in the US. What sort of an impact has this had on science? It's had an enormous impact. There have been many, many government scientists out of work, not sure how they're going to be able to pay their bills. And now they have a lot of work to catch up on. I've seen some interviews with some government agencies like the FDA, so it might take them a year to recover. They've just got all of these drugs that haven't been being reviewed. There's uh, grant applications at the NSF that haven't been being reviewed. There's getting back into your email might be a hassle. It's just going to take a real long time for them to get back up to normal. And then what's possibly even worse is science that hasn't been getting done over the past month here. And do you have any examples of the sort of work that's been affected? There's a very famous long-running ecological study on an island in the Great Lakes where there's a wolf population. Researchers go out there every year to study how wolves are interacting with their prey, with moose. And they have to go at this time of year. And last I heard, they weren't going to be able to go if it stretched out much beyond January. So we'll see if they are able to go out there and see how the wolves are doing. Thinking about the shutdown in the broader context, Sarah, obviously it is affecting directly folks in the US. But what about researchers around the world? Are they seeing any sort of ripple effects? Well, researchers around the world uh, rely on a lot of US data sets that NASA collect on climate um, I'm sure there have been collaborations that have been affected. People haven't been able to reach their U.S. colleagues. Quite, quite a few large scientific meetings had to go forward without the U.S. contingent there. Nobody's happy about this. 
Right. So a lot of things have been affected then, Sarah. But as things stand, people are going back to work, which has to be good news, right? Yeah, it is good news. They're going to at least be able to start catching up on work. But everyone's kind of living in this constant fear right now, is the impression I've had of what's going to happen in three weeks. They really want to get things back up and running if it's only going to get shut down again very soon. And so this is a possibility then. So there's a few weeks worth of funding. And then do we know what happens afterwards? We don't. It, it could get shut down again. It it may not. And I, th- I think that the, one of the things that we have talked about too is the long-term impacts of this and people's willingness to want to work at government jobs. I live in Washington, D.C. I have friends who have been affected by the shutdown in the last three weeks and are thinking about getting new jobs now because this just could keep happening. Well, let's move on to our second story today, Sarah, and it's about drones. What's the story here? Uh, yeah, so um, drones are being used in conservation. They're used pretty frequently in a lot of different types of conservation work, monitoring animals, monitoring various ecosystems. And this particular case, though, they are being used in the Galapagos to drop poison on rats. Huh. I mean, I guess rats aren't good news for the Galapagos. Uh, no, the rats eat eggs, they eat uh, trees, they eat and otherwise destroy all of these species that are very special in the Galapagos. They're just kind of bad news all around. And why drones? I mean, it seems like you could you know, easily go out on foot and, and distribute this poison. Oh, you could. And that's what people have been doing for a long time. They've been fighting against invasive rats for many, many decades and had been making some progress until recently rats showed back up. And instead of hacking their way through the forest to build trails to go out there, they realized they could just drop the poison from the air and distribute it that way. Drones are a lot cheaper and logistically easier to use than helicopters, which is kind of historically what's been done when you need to disperse something over an island. But yeah, this new technology is going to be the first test of whether you can do this on a large scale. Well, if this initiative has just started, how long do we need to wait to find out how effective it is? Yeah, they just dropped the first round. They're going to be doing another one in a couple of weeks here, and then they're going to be monitoring the rats for the next two years. I I thought it was kind of interesting about this story is that they had to only cover half of the island at first because of mechanical difficulties with the drones, and then they spread the poison on the rest of the island by hand. So that'll actually enable scientists in the future to compare those two halves and see whether uh, the drones were more effective than humans. Oh, wow. So it wasn't sort of an accidental experiment then? Yeah. Well, what are researchers themselves saying about this this drone use? Well, uh, a lot of researchers in different parts of the world are interested in it. There's some invasive possums in New Zealand, for instance. People that want to eradicate them uh, might want to use this in the future if it works out well. Though there, there is a little bit of cause to maybe not be concerned, but at least think about the fact that instead of going in and actually seeing that we are killing a lot of animals, it kind of lets you be detached from that reality. And I think that some conservationists want researchers to keep that in mind before they get too excited about never having to look at the rats that they're killing to just think, well, we are taking a lot of animal lives here and keep that in perspective. Well, thank you, Sarah. And listeners, for more on those stories, head over to nature.com slash news. And that's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast or on email, podcast at nature.com. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. 
One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.